Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and coatings industry. Today's guest is Thomas Frey. He's Google's top-rated futurist speaker. So, Thomas, thank you. Thank you for uh, being on the show. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. This is an unusual time to be alive, and I think we're, we're going through a massive transition right now, and it's fun to explore what's different than it has been in the past. Absolutely. And you're the right person, because I don't know any other futurists, and I'm just wondering... How did you end up in the position you're in talking to groups about the future and you know what sort of uh, trends or things that are upcoming? Yeah, you know, this was like the, the last thing I ever thought I'd be doing because, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I, I was scared to be in front of a crowd. I didn't like to talk to people. I wasn't very articulate. And, and so I kind of grew into it. I found that I really liked this. I spent a lot of time. I always thought I would be the guy in the background helping make decisions, but it, you know, it actually worked out quite different for me. So, <laughs> so I just finished up a four-city tour where I was speaking to live audiences in Milwaukee and Virginia Beach and Florida. And I found out how much I was missing that. This is the first time this year I had some live audiences. You know, I, I do lots of virtual talks, but it's different. And uh, having having a live audience, you get to mingle with the people, you get to see what they're like. And yeah, and I found that my first talk was really bad. So I, I needed the practice again. <laughs> yeah, quite an unusual time to be working through. You know, with your uh, tour, what were the common questions people ask you? Well, there's lots of questions surrounding kind of the, the great resignation of why people are quitting their jobs. And my son reminded me that he used to be a cable and modem installer in Omaha. And when you install cable modems, you have to climb telephone poles. And he climbed a telephone pole and fell off and broke his leg and he during that time he got workman's comp for getting healthy again and he decided to start his own business and he says it only took me eight weeks to start my own business then and he says people were locked up for a lot longer than eight weeks so that's why so many people have started their own business 4.4 million people started a business in 2020 we haven't got the results of 2021 yet but i'm sure it's going to be another record yeah, I mean, so people are starting their businesses. You know, I've been an entrepreneur for a while. I know that not everyone should start a business. Is there right. going to be a correction uh, in the next couple <laughs> of years? Yeah, we're going to find a lot of people that realize, no, I'm not good at starting a business. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> but there's there's lots of creative paths to go down where you're not actually being a CEO, like running your own business. If you want to become a freelancer, as an example, you, you just pick up gigs rather than a full-time job. Some people just prefer that. So they can, they can drive Uber part-time, they can clean houses part-time, they can do these little assignments. The way Hollywood has worked for years, Hollywood, whenever a movie project came into play, it would attract writers, directors, camera guys, actors and actresses, makeup people. They would all come together for this project. As soon as it was over, 
then they would all dissipate and move on and very organically form around other projects. So the, the business world could move into this direction as well. Rather than hiring people, a full-time person for this job, bringing somebody on for two months or two weeks or two days or even two hours to solve particular problems is very likely the direction that we're headed. And we don't have the tools for working with that level of precision just yet, but very likely that's the direction that we're going to be going. But being a freelancer is not not an easy task because being a freelancer, you have to know how to how to sell yourself. You know how to how to quantify your skills. You need know how to price your services, how to network, and how to you know start your your books and how to do accounting and keep track of all your time and expenses and all of those things. And invariably, there's no one person that's good at all of these things. So you have to learn it all, and you have to bring part time people in to help you out in different things. And but we're not teaching people how to become freelancers. Colleges don't want to teach that because if somebody took a course in how to become a freelancer, then they drop out of college. And so they don't want that to happen. So, <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to see lots of freelancer academies cropping up here because people just need help doing something else. Yeah. Since freelancers can come and go as they choose, does it put the onus on the company to just be better, a better company? Well, if you're a company, Sometimes it makes sense to hire freelancers. Sometimes it works best to have a full-time employee. You need the institutional knowledge, the um, kind of the, the background information, everything to solidify this company. But there's lots of projects that that you don't have the in-house talent to do. So just bringing in that that expert from outside to work on something, that's where it makes sense. And so how you draw the line around your company and what's the core team and and what problems you can solve by outside talent that that all you kind of work through all of that mm. with with uh, you know freelancers the pandemic and you know effectively a more efficient global marketplace for the talent does it erode sort of the wage in some of these sort of more developed countries well, yeah. See, we're we're in such a transitional phase here now. The skills that are in high demand today will very likely not be in high demand ten years from now. We did some some work on what it takes to become an AI engineer right now. There's very few schools that are teaching that. The demand is super high, and um, by 2030, we're likely going to need an additional 3 million AI engineers in the world. So how do you ramp up to that level and produce that many of skilled people to fill all those jobs? That becomes very tricky to figure out how to do that. And so there are certain skills right now that are in high demand. You know, if you're a cloud management person, if you're a cybersecurity person, those are in high demand. Very soon, we're going to have a high demand for quantum computing, AI engineering. That's that's going to be around for a while. And and so we we need to continually produce this talent. But colleges tend to be too slow at doing this. You know, libraries aren't good enough. Colleges are too slow. And then technology still has a bad interface for the human mind. And so we've got a we've got our work cut out for us. So how do we how do we produce this next generation of 
super smart, talented individuals. Mm. So I love to ask this question of, you know, how many Einsteins and Mozarts are born in every million people? And then naturally you should ask, can there be more and should there be more? <laughs> and and how do, how do we find those, those unique individuals mm-hmm. and really give them all the, the support that they need to let their, their genius grow? It becomes a great question. I'm not sure anybody's got the right answer at the moment. Yeah, no, you talked about AI. How quickly do you think AI is going to take hold in some of these industries that are a little bit slower, like constructions or chemical industry and stuff like that? You know, yeah. you know, I know there's a lot of discussion and, you know, sometimes you could say hype around this, but how quickly is it, is it going to start taking over the world? Yeah, we have an acute shortage of talent right now, acute shortage of personnel to do the work. So kind of the way I think about this is, person with a toolbox is more valuable than a person without. So a person with a robot is is more valuable than somebody without. So a person with with AI and robotics, you know, that's much more valuable. And so these become uh, additional tools in our our toolbox. These, These become things that give us additional capabilities. So the amount that we can accomplish in a single day goes up dramatically. And so the amount that somebody could accomplish 20 years ago is going to pale in comparison and something we can do today. And then 20 years from now, it's going to go up this exponential growth curve even considerably more. So we need to set our sights higher. We need to, uh, our lifetime of accomplishments is going to ramp up dramatically. So we need to look for the ability to tackle the really big problems out there because we do have the the technology and the capabilities now to wrestle these big problems to the ground. That's why I find that all like very exciting because we're moving in the right direction, but um, it's it's hard to kind of set the trajectory at at the right angle at any moment in time. So, <laughs> sure, sure. Um, you know, obviously you can't set the tra- trajectory perfectly, but. Let's say, you know, uh, you know, I love personal development improvement for someone that's trying to be future ready. What sort of things do we need to do? I think one of the topics you like to talk about is how to be a futurist. Like, how, how do you do that? During COVID, we actually produced a course on how to how to be a futurist. It's called Future Like a Boss. And during this course, which we just had the first cohort go through this course, it's 14 weeks long, and it teaches you lots of different uh, what's called anticipatory thinking protocols. So, it, so it's different tools and techniques for thinking about the future. It helps you give kind of an expanded view. See, we've we've all personally experienced the past. In fact, when you look around yourself, you see evidence of the past all around you. In fact, all information you come into contact with is essentially history. So the past becomes very knowable. Yeah, but we're going to be spending the rest of our lives in the future. So it's almost as if we're walking backwards into the future. As a futurist, my job is to help turn people around, to give them some idea of what the future might hold. So when you ask this question, how does the future get created? Well, the future gets created in the minds of everybody around us. We all participate in creating the future. Certainly, some people have much more influence than others. But I, I use this phrase quite a bit. Uh, the future creates the present. 
Now, this is just the opposite of what most people think. Most people think that what we're doing today is somehow going to create the future. But from a little different perspective, it's these images, our understanding of the future that determine our actions today. So here's the key thing. If I change somebody's vision of the future, I change the way they make decisions today. And, uh, and that's my goal every time I do a presentation is to change people's vision of the future. That becomes very critical because the more insights you can get into the future and whether, whether it's a technique where you create little, little stories, little vignettes about how a housekeeper is going to deal with AI in 2030 or how a startup business is going to deal with uh, cloud management in 2040. Or will I be planning a vacation in 2050 on, in a space hotel? And will it be affordable? Should I be saving up money to do that right now to, to go there? Probably. <laughs> it's still going to be very expensive. So, <laughs> so when you create these little stories around, then you create these little pixels on this grand mosaic of the future. And so you piece it all together. And, and pretty soon, once you create these little stories, then they all start tying together and and then you find out how different different people and different walks of life are viewing these things quite differently. That's that's what I find interesting. Yeah, I mean, out of all the the things that are so you see upcoming, so the stories that you you sort of look at, what are the the few that are most exciting for you? Uh, there's there's actually quite a few. I think autonomous transportation is going to be the most disruptive technology in all history. I think it, it's going to be more disruptive than the invention of the wheel or the invention of the automobile itself, just simply because it affects more people in a shorter period of time than anything in all history. Um, and there's lots of detractors out there right now that think that we'll, we'll never quite get there because there's so many nuances to driving that, you know, the last mile and then you get to the last hundred feet and, and uh, you have to make lots of micro corrections and everything to do things exactly the way you want. But somehow I think we're going to, we're going to figure all these things out. When I talk about autonomous transportation, it's not just the cars on the road. It's drones that take us from point A to point B, the air taxis, the drone taxis, it's boats that are taking people from point A to point B or submarines. Uh, so all of these things, you know, even uh, the John Deere and Caterpillar and uh, big equipment makers, they all have driverless divisions and they're all working on this, trying to solve this problem. So it's it's not like it's just uh, just the automobile industry working on it. That's where we hear the most, the most news. But um, and then you, st you start looking at, well, what's the easiest areas to implement? The easiest is probably to put an autopilot on on a big 18 wheeler truck. Once you get it on an interstate, you put it on autopilot and then the driver crawls in the, the sleeper cab and plays video games or watches movies for the next 10 hours and then comes out when they need to, <laughs> to steer it into the right location. That's likely the direction that this is headed. That's an easy one to actually think through. But as we, we think about digital twin technology and digital twin technology is when you put sensors on everything, 
then you will be able to actually monitor uh, the operation of equipment remotely. And whether that's uh, a cruise ship or whether it's a turbine in a power plant or a piece of equipment like a backhoe or something, you'll be able to monitor it literally on the other side of the world. And then as, as this improves, then we move into this area called remote robotics, where you can operate that equipment remotely. So, so then you start asking questions around this, how long before I can actually do farming on the other side of the world, because I'm driving this equipment that's over there. But something that's a more likely scenario is how much longer will we still need pilots in an airplane that are flying the plane? There's, there's a big trust issue that goes along with this, whether people are going to trust it. But it would be very realistic to think that the airlines might automate the co-pilot out of existence. So you only need the pilot on the plane and the co-pilot could be in a cubicle somewhere else. And then what if we were able to actually seal up the cockpit of the plane and we have people flying the plane remotely then suddenly we can change a lot of the security requirements on planes because taking over an aircraft is no longer an, an option for terrorists. And I think a lot of people would be anxious to be able to avoid all the security at airports uh, and make flying much easier again. And so, so you go through these different scenarios, you, you play them out and you say, well, what's realistic and what isn't? And then, and is that real, really how that's going to happen? And then you start asking what if question, what if this doesn't happen? Or what if there's a new technology over here? Um, what if these countries resist and say, no, we're not going to do that? You know, then then you then you have to start playing around with different scenarios of how that plays out. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, do you look at the past to see how certain things uh, got adopted in their their paths, or do you just ignore that and just try to theorize going forward? Oh yeah, uh, you, you absolutely have to look at kind of the the patterns of introduction in the past, and you know how quickly how quickly we adopted televisions in all of our houses. I remember I was four years old when I got my first television, and my dad and a friend picked uh, set the television up in the living room. I was sitting on the couch and I was just mesmerized by that television. At four years old, I didn't want to stop watching it. And uh, even though it was terrible reception and terrible programming and everything, uh, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And uh, and now I would I would find that to be a disturbing television set because it was just in black and white and it was not very clear and foggy and bought lots of other and you constantly had to adjust the antenna you had to dial in the focus and everything on it it was a painful experience but it was the coolest thing back then and so when you look at the adoption of things like that in the past and how does that how how do we, is there an equivalent adoption curve for some new technology that we're going to come up with. I mean, everybody's talking about VR technology lately. I just personally don't think people are going to want to have a VR helmet on their head for long periods of time. That's that if, if as an example, you're watching a football game on VR or, or some other sport, 
it suddenly it takes you out of the room and you have friends over, you have guests over and suddenly you forget where you put your beer or where you put the pizza and they're having conversations in the rest of the room and you're not part of it because you're so immersed in this experience. Technology tends to be very isolating. And I think we're going to have this constant fight for people who want to maintain this, um, these relationships with other people. And, uh, and so you're fighting, you'll be fighting the technology the whole time. Essentially, you know, us people are the, uh, the limiting factors for some of this uh, augmented uh, technology. Well, right, right. You know, this could be very cool if, if you're watching a football game on VR. If all the players, as an example, had cameras on their helmets, all around their helmets, and then you could immerse yourself down on the field with a player and you could pick whichever player you wanted to to be, and then you could see what they're seeing and hear what they're hearing. And, and, and then you could even add, you know, this haptic sensation. I mean, when they get hit, when they get pushed around and stuff, then you could actually feel it. That makes it so you're very much part of this. But so you do that one or two times and how long before that wears out? And um, is that something you want to come back to again and again and again? Is that a repeatable experience? Is um, is that you, you have the gee whiz factor and it just wears out after a few times and nobody wants to do it ever again? You, you, you almost have to create a new experience. You can't have something that's comparable that you're trying to pull into. You almost have to create a new experience where they don't have a a uh, expectation going in. So I'm not I'm not sure what that would look like, but uh, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Yeah, for sure. So you know, people must ask you all sorts of things. What's the, some of the silliest things people ask you? You know, lottery numbers. I don't know, but what what <laughs> what, what are what are things they ask you? Like what 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 were they thinking? Oh, you know, lots of stock picks and things like that. <laughs> but I, I try to avoid any financial advice. But I mean, when we look at overall trends. I mean, there, there are certain things that were headed in this direction. I tend to think that we're, we're going to move into the direction of lab-grown meats and lab-grown chicken, beef, pork, and fish. But I think that's going to go off in lots of unusual directions. I think we're going to have, since there's lots of competition for the beef, pork, chicken, and, and um, fish, that we'll see lots of exotic animals like this person will be growing wombat meat or penguin meat or bumblebee meat or something, something really unusual, something weird. I think we're going to start seeing lab-grown breast milk. I think we're going to start seeing lab-grown blood. And um, and so our our blood supply, we probably this will make it so nobody ever donates blood ever again. So we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. But rather than just thinking about food products that you can grow or consumable things, what if you could grow lab-grown leather or materials or or even lab-grown wood? Lumber right now is hugely expensive. So what if you could just grow this trunk of a tree that you could carve into wood pieces? What if you could go take the, the DNA from a celebrity and and actually grow a leather that you can make a purse out of or some fashion accessories. 
And I, I love to ask this question for women. If you could actually get a George Clooney purse made from his DNA, would you actually buy that? That becomes kind of this unusual out of left field question that nobody knows how to answer. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a, taking branding to a whole different level. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What about construction or anything? Do you, do you know anything that you're, uh, you're uh, aware of there? Oh, well, we see we see the 3D printing of houses and kind of a competing force is this, this bricklaying robot coming out of Australia that can lay up to a thousand bricks in an hour. And uh, so actually being able to build a house out of bricks faster than you can 3D print a house. I think we're we're going to look at lots of different options because when you when you 3D print a house you're just basically doing the structure you're doing the walls and and you're going to want fancier walls than just a concrete wall you're going to want some sort of wallpaper you want to paint it you want to add pictures to the walls you want you want something to set that off and so maybe you have brick laying robot that actually puts bricks on the inside of a brick wall or you put stucco on it or you put some other finish on it and so I think we're going to have lots more tools to do these things, but I think it all speeds up the the rate at which we do things. I think it speeds up a house that would normally take six months to build. Suddenly you're doing it in a week. You go from start to finish and it's all finished in a week. That's, I think, what we're where we're headed. Um but it's going to take a while to get there because we're dealing in the physical world. Something in the digital world can just take off exponentially. But when once you're actually moving physical pieces, that takes time. And so we're going to see lots of changes there. You know, by 2040, what percent of houses will be 3D printed or what percentage of construction? That definitely a point you can argue. I know Dubai was saying that they would have 30% of their construction done by 3D printers by 2030. Uh, I think that's probably a little early. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, we're learning a lot in the process. And part of it is coming up with the machines that can do all this 3D printing. If, if you have this standard machine that you could 3D print houses, there's going to be lots of companies that want to buy that. Can you mass produce this robotic 3D printer uh, house printer. Yeah, that remains to be seen how quickly we can get up to that. So Thomas, as you're sort of uh, mentioning all these trends, I, it just occurred to me, how do you stay in touch with all these trends? I, I, I'm trying to visualize, is your inbox and your email filled with newsletters or do you have these secret society meetings where you talk about trends? <laughs> I, I noticed that you're part of the Triple Nine Society or a past member. How do you think that through? How do you stay in touch with all this stuff? Yeah, so I'm curious about a lot of things, and I have different news feeds and different techniques. I mean, one one way to to stay up on things is we uh, we actually have our own podcast called the Futurati Podcast, and we invite experts in different fields to come on, and that's been very helpful. That uh, very much has. There's different uh, associations, different groups I'm members of. And so we ask a lot of questions in those. It's, um, yeah, and it just constantly seems like I, I don't know enough. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm reading as much as I can. I'm following these different, these different lines of thinking. But then I, oh, if I want to know about how do you mine cryptocurrency? 
Oh, okay. That's a whole different thing. I need to go down that pathway. And then you, you try to find out who the experts are. And the first thing, the first thing you have to do is you have to start understanding the vocabulary that they're using because, because every, you get into the topic of the metaverse, you get into DAOs, you get into NFTs, you start looking at the crypto world there and you say, wow, they're, they're, they're just speaking a whole different language. And, and so you, you have to watch lots of videos, listen to podcasts, you have to read lots of articles, and then eventually all of these things will start making a little more sense. But I'm certainly not an expert on any of these topics, I, but I'm very curious about them. So I, I spend lots of time trying to stay up on it. That's, that's the hardest part of the job, but that's also the most fun part of the job. Absolutely. I know a lot of people that are trying to stay out of rabbit holes, but you get paid to go down them. So (laughs) (laughs) wonderful, Thomas. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your insight. Now I have a lot to think about. I'm sure I'll go down a few rabbit holes myself, but uh, thank you so much, Thomas. All right. Well, thank you. I wish you the best. Thank you for listening to the Specified Growth Podcast today. I also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes, entrepreneurial tips, and more. See you over there. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.